erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past. Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Baseball season is winding down to the championships. So how'd your team do? Winners? Losers? No matter your team's standings, the baseball game itself goes on. Why is that? Why does baseball still survive, even thrive in America? Maybe because it is a game that makes you think. Makes you think about big ideas, about agency, responsibility, about judgment. Baseball is a philosopher's game. Am I putting too much onto the back of whacking a ball with a stick and running while people scramble to throw the ball back? Well, here's one answer from the philosopher Alva Noe. He came to Seattle to speak at Town Hall in July of 2019. Alva Noe is a writer and a philosopher living in Berkeley and New York. He works on the nature of mind and human experience, and he thinks about baseball. His latest book is a compilation of essays he wrote for an NPR blog on sports. It's called Infinite Baseball, Notes from a Philosopher at the Ballpark. Hi, Alvino. Hi, that's me. Yes, I'm and just I... getting getting uh, myself settled here. Oh, okay. I don't mean to, how, I don't mean to rush how's, you. How's the connection? It's good. I'm, uh, so I'm at home and we're on a mobile phone, but it's got good Wi-Fi. Yeah, it's very and, high quality, uh, actually. Excellent, excellent. Do you remember interviewing me 10 years ago? I sure do. Yeah, yeah. I came into the studio for that one. Yeah. I'm flies. So I'm, I'm in the, uh, my sort of work area at home, and there's children on the floor above who are stomping around. Just let me know if anything this creates a problem for your, um, I will, but you know, for your process. The beauty of podcasts is that it's so much more informal. That's really true. It's a whole new, it's a whole new kind of, whole new kind of, uh, conversation that it can is happen. it is so i'm uh, i'm sitting down i've got a cup of coffee at my left hand i've got the phone in my right hand and my book in front of me all right so i'm i'm ready whenever you are and i'll start because i was thinking about something in reading this book i was thinking about well two things one i was watching the mariners night before and um watch them my my team is struggling right now and oh, uh, sad. and uh they because it's a building year we'll get to that in a minute but uh um they, they were ahead, and then they completely blew it on a series of mistakes by, and that was what I couldn't ascribe the blame to. I couldn't decide, and, mm. and that got me thinking about your book, because your book, your idea of baseball is all about uh, ascribing agency, ascribing who's, uh, who's at fault when, who gets credit for what, and, and that's what you call a philosophical, that's what makes it a philosophical game, and just wrap my head around that a little bit. Why is that what makes it a philosophical game? There's different aspects to it, and I don't want to be too simple-minded. But the thing that has always astonished me in, in thinking about baseball is this fact that, sure, we care about the final score. But, you know, we admire the job our pitcher does, even if he doesn't get the win. Or we'll celebrate the no-hitter or the perfect game even though that has nothing to do with the final score. And I realized that 
in when it comes to baseball, we're constantly not thinking just about what's happening in a kind of brute physical way, like where's the ball, where's the runner standing, but we're really asking these subtle questions about was that a was that a um, is that runner on on first base because of something he accomplished, or did the other team mess up, or did that runner get to second base from first because he stole the base, or did he make it on defensive indifference, or was he advanced by you know by um, by the actions of another hitter? Um, and it's only when you ask these questions about sort of who done it, who deserves credit, who deserves praise or compliment and who's who's at fault it's only when you've got all of those i call them forensic matters because it's kind of like the whodunit of police procedurals that you really understand what's happening and and that's what matters to us and when, when you watch a game we're constantly making those kinds of evaluations and it, it goes all the way down and this is this is kind of an amazing idea if you wrap your head around this it goes all the way down to balls and strikes you know if a, if, if the umpire calls a ball on a batter what he's basically saying batter public world who are watching is that you can't blame the batter for not taking a swing at that pitch that's the pitcher's fault on the other hand if it's a if it's a strike that the batter fails to swing at well then you say that's that's something that it's it's on him it's it's his it's his failing he should have been able to hit it or similarly that pitcher deserves credit for throwing a good pitch that the batter couldn't hit which is also a kind of paradoxical idea the pitcher aims to throw a pitch that's so good you can't hit it <laughs> and um, and well what about the third uh, part of this which you touch on where the umpire makes a call that is wrong where does that fit into the the philo- philosophy of the game and the umpire's relationship to the game yeah, now that opens up a, a really complicated, um, I almost want to say can of worms, because these days with all the new technologies that are coming online, they're not just idle philosophical discussions, what your theory of the umpire is, there's there's people that want to make changes. Um, my view, to put it pretty simply, is that the umpire is part of the game. The umpire is, is, is one of the players on the field, and that the umpire is is making judgment calls, and that you can't eliminate the judgment in the judgment call. You can't you can't replace that by by something automatic. So for me, as a strike zone, I think of it as a kind of it's a it's a zone of responsibility. It's it's the strike zone is the zone the batter has to take ownership of and 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 be responsible for. And so that what the umpire is judging is not the physical location thought of just in pure physics terms, but rather what the umpire is judging is um, should the batter have hit it? And you can we can disagree with the umpire. We really can. And sometimes we, we do. And sometimes we think there's no question about it. That was a missed call. But I think what we're disagreeing about is never just location. It's always about the meaning or significance of the location. How is that different? And I know you've thought of this from football or from tennis. Tennis in particular, you talk about how the the automatic line you know the 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 line is now looked at by so many cameras that that's the decision football is still uh, also about that though there are some calls that are made and even baseball inches towards that where it has the notion of you know waiting for the guys back in new york to look over the look over the instant replay but but you argue it's still somewhat different in what way 
I'm glad you mentioned the guys, the guys uh, in the cave in Chelsea who do the instant replay, because what's what's so cool about them is that they're just more umpires, and you you and I both know, and I'm sure our listeners who have paid attention to this know, when they show the you know the four different angles on the slide at home, it it that doesn't always make it easier to tell what happened. Sometimes it makes it harder to tell what happened because it's the the reality is is fast and and messy and isn't necessarily complicated in the picture regardless of what angle the picture was taken at so i think that um the 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 reason i actually support instant replay in baseball is that instead of it's not like replacing what the umpire does with a machine it's just simply bringing in a committee of umpires and taking time and giving everybody in the stadium a kind of learning opportunity to think about to think about what's at stake or what's at play or what the issues are that the, that the umpire is trying to face. So they're not making it machine-like. They're not making it automatic. They're just kind of changing the form it takes and where it, where it's where the deliberation is happening. So that's very different from a, a line measuring, you know, radar beam in 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 tennis, um, or a uh, or, or or similar kinds of kinds of applications of technology to make those determinations. Now. I should I should say that my view is that baseball is different from these other sports, not in 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 kind really, but just in degree. And it has to do with the fact that I think in baseball we we give ourselves time to really have these discussions. Um, and it, it starts in in Little League. You know, my my son comes home and says, you know, I pitched okay, but uh, I let up a bunch of runs, but they weren't earned. And hmm. so then, well, what does that mean? What is what is an earned run versus a non-earned run? And how do you decide that? And who decides that? And what goes what goes into trying to even wrap your mind around that? Um, so you can have this, you know, razor sharp, mathematically pristine statistic called the earned run average. But the notion of an earned run is always going to be this interpretive one, you know, should we credit, do, do in some sense we think it's the pitcher's fault that the, that the run scored or was it a result of something beyond his control? So I think that baseball is uniquely obsessed with these questions. Uh, but, it's, but it's not the case that baseball is unique and these questions are rising. And one, I don't know if I made that clear, but so the same kinds of questions can arise in these other sports too, and sometimes will arise. But baseball makes room for it. And one place where you, where you see that beautifully, I think, is um, the practice of scorekeeping in baseball. And if you go to a baseball stadium, you'll still see, usually, I'm sorry to say, kind of the old geezers sitting around with a pad on their laps, <laughs> writing, write, writing the game down as it's being played. And if you've ever tried to do it, I, I like to do it. It's very hard. Very hard. And Typically, you know, all right, it's easy the first couple of innings, this just sort of hits and, you know, little, you know, sort of all basically straightforward action. But then, you know, you start getting more complicated plays and was it a sacrifice and or was or was it was it actually an attempt at a base hit? And then there's a substitution by the coaches and pretty soon you've got all, you've got everybody in the row of seats trying to figure out what happened, like what happened. And there isn't it's never cleared. So then you wait to hear what the stadium's you know official scorekeeper decides. But that never puts the question to rest because I like to think that baseball is a game where we're trying to write its history in real time as it's going on. And we can't, we can't really turn to others to do that for us. We always have to, to own it ourselves a little bit. 
So I was watching this game, as I mentioned, and they brought in a new pitcher in the uh, eighth inning. And uh, after amazing seven innings by the starting pitcher, uh, they brought in this new pitcher in the eighth inning, and something was happening. Either the pitcher was hitting, pitching just balls that were easy to hit, so he wasn't quite doing his job, or something had happened in their information about where to play these balls because three balls in a row were went into the field where you would have thought somebody should have been if the scouting had been better. So so there there it is in a nutshell, right? It's the figuring, it's what you called, figuring the score is telling the story of the game. And I was at a loss at that moment to think about, well, who's who's not communicating what to who on yeah. the on the uh, defensive side and in a case like that you might even wonder whether somehow the the opposite team has has broken the code of the of the pitches and, and knows what's coming before it's before it's uh, before it, before it's delivered um, the uh, the the whole issue about pitching is a fascinating one if I can move in that direction sure. um, the uh, you know I feel that a big ins- I mean I've been a baseball fan all my life and as you know I've also been a, a fan of a team that has tended to be a losing team, the New York Mets. But um, I feel like I learned so much about baseball, coaching my kids baseball. Um, and I should actually say being one of the sort of assistant coaches, I was never the, the head little league coach. I was not, not actually good enough to do that. I was just a dad who got, got involved in, in it. But I learned so much watching the kids play, more than I ever learned playing myself. And uh, one of the things I learned is, is how much emotionally is carried on the shoulders of, of, the, of the kids. You know, when a, it, in Little League, up until the age of 12, it's not uncommon for kids to simply burst out crying if they strike out. It's just very common. They, they just start to weep. The emotions are so intense. And it's even greater for the pitcher because the pitcher really is on this kind of little hill in the middle of the field and everybody's watching the pitcher and everybody's judging the pitcher and the pitcher knows that everybody's watching him or her actually at Little League you still have have lots of girls playing um, but watching him or her and and un, and and with this sense of responsibility I've, I've seen pitchers in Little League um, just kind of heave with sobs of of tears and look to the coach please you know rescue me save me from this predicament take me out the reason I'm mentioning this is that there really is a sense, I think, in which pitchers pay a, a very special price and have a very special responsibility in the game. Um, all the other kids are chattering, you know, making trash talk or all the things that they do. But the pitcher is really alone in this tunnel of concentration and, and, and anxiety. <laughs> or when it's going good, it's not anxiety. When it's going good, it's ecstasy, actually. To watch a pitcher who's just got it is, is a joyful thing to behold. But the reason I mention it is these days the rational-minded, mathematically-oriented baseball fans and critics all say that the win-loss category for pitchers should be should be jettisoned, because after all, you can pitch a great game but still lose if your team doesn't score, or uh, or if the other team just um, happens to score more, say because of what whatever. Um, so you can you can pitch well and lose, and pitch and and pitch badly and win. Why should we praise pitchers? for wins and losses. But when you remember that really those guys in the field, even though they're paid in the, in the millions, they're really just big kids. And, um, and if you remember just how much special psychological burden and, and emotional and leadership burden is on those guys, 
I, I, I see the logic of appreciating that it is the pitcher who won. And if the pitcher won, even though he didn't pitch that well, well, that's called luck. And sometimes sometimes we are lucky. Or maybe that's called grace. You know, maybe God's on your side or whatever it is. The, 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 the point is it's not um, – something is lost, I think, if you try to take that out of the game and, and, and try to reduce it just to the uh, sort of analytically controllable elements. I like the notion of grace. Now, is grace a philosophical concept? Actually, I use that very cautiously because um, grace is a is a is a is a subtle notion. Grace, you think of the grace of the dancer, the grace of the poet, the grace of the athlete, the beautiful the beautiful movement of a shortstop, or the the grace of um, the grace of uh, a, a tennis player. But then also, grace is related to this notion of of some something from without i'm not actually a religious person myself but you can imagine it you know something greater than than you which which blesses you and makes it gives and gives you grace gives you gives you the possibility to to be free of gravity and just be be beautiful i i you know so that brings me to a question about us the the uh the audience the spectator especially the spectator in the in the stadium um, you tell a story about uh, people rising up sort of at the last, uh, when the last pitch of an inning or the last pitch of a mm. game occurs mm. spontaneously. Um, and, and, and that if this, is, if this is figuring the score, is telling the story of the game, and that we're all reflecting on the game when it, we're really engaged, what's our role? Where, where are we in the, you know, in Seattle we have this notion of the 12th man for the Seahawks, the football team. Mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. about, mostly about rooting and cheering and making a lot of noise to disrupt the other uh, team. Right. And soccer right. is similar in that sort of martial way when soccer fans get up and shout. Um, and you go to, uh, you must go to Oakland sometimes. And you I know, there's, there's those guys in the, in the bleachers that bang on the drum That's right. constantly um, and, shout at the, uh, and shout at the opposing players. And they're so close, it's, it's easy to hear them. But so what's, What's our role in the in the in the philosophical game? It's um, that's a great question. One one way I come at that is is I'm a philosopher, and and even more than a philosopher, I'm a writer. I'm somebody who is is always trying to find ways to to, to put words down on paper to articulate what puzzles me and what I want to what I want to understand. And one really interesting thing about baseball, I talk about this in the book, is how much writing there is about it. And not just how much good writing there is, but how much good writing there is by, by smart people. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to compliment myself, but you know, like take Stephen Jay Gould, who's one of the greatest evolutionary scientists of, of modernity. Um, you know, he's a paleontologist thinking about time on that kind of massive scale but he collected a he put together published a book which is a collection of writings about baseball and why you know why why do people with theoretical inclinations get drawn to think about the game and um and and now there's writing about other sports but i I think there's more writing about baseball than, than other sports maybe with the possible exception of boxing but um but anyway there's something so one of the things I've, I've come to think is that baseball is really a, a thinking game. It's for reasons that we've been talking about. Baseball requires a certain kind of an, a standpoint, a, a refle- kind of a self-reflexive questioning about the game while you're playing the game. 
And that's not confined. Here I'm now connecting to your question in a sort of long-winded way. That's not confined to the players. That's the coaches. That's the umpires. That's the fans. That's the... And remember, the fan is really just like the mom of the pitcher in the Little League game. It's just, except, you know, the circle is wider. Um, but there's that kind of attachment. There's the community of attachment. And everybody is engaged in the game. Now, I'm just putting to one side a separate topic, which is commercialism in the sport and the fact that many people go to the game simply to drink in the bar or to ride in the amusement parks or, you know, um, many stadiums now really don't seem to be focusing on the game. In fact, sometimes the sound systems are so loud, the decibels are so high that it's actually even hard to just focus on the game. Um, and uh, I, I recently was a chaperone uh, from my kids' uh, high school. The whole night, I, I was one of 70 parents that took whole ninth grade class to see uh, an A's game against the Angels. Uh, and uh, um, what the kids loved most of all was the guys coming around with video cameras and then projecting them onto the jumbotron. That's, that was really what was exciting for the for the kids. Um, anyway, so putting all of that aside, I think when we go to a game, there's a way in which, and I realize this is a little bit of a stretch, but there's a way in which we're all playing baseball, not just the guys on the field and not just the coaches and not just the umpires, but all of us insofar as we are asking the questions in real time that the players are asking, you know, what do I do now? What pitch is going to be thrown? And if it's thrown, where should I try to hit it? And, you know, is this a situation where there should be a hit and run? Or, you know, and, 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 and when I ask the question, what pitch is going to be thrown? Well, what pitch can this pitcher throw, given how many pitches he's thrown? What, what repertoire of pitches does he have? And it's only if I think about all these variables that I have any chance of getting a hit. Now, People are always saying, Major League Baseball is always saying, we need to find ways to speed up the pace of play. But you can't speed it up because you can't, you can't take away the opportunity to think the complex thoughts that need to be thought in order to cope with, to literally survive the play of the game. So anyway, that's kind of my answer to you. I think there's a way in which the, the, the engaged fan is a kind of co-player. <laughs> I used to love to watch Ichiro prepare to swing the bat. Oh yeah. Because oh, yeah. his ritual was all about fi you know finding his mental zone, finding some zen moment. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of players have that, right? Or players yeah. stepping out of the box, right, to recompose themselves. And if you're paying attention to the game that way, it's actually quite a bit of fun to to be on that level with them. Let let me just interrupt the flow of our conversation to say amen to the praise of Ichiro. I he actually, I once once um, had very good seats at Seattle versus uh, the A's uh, in Oakland, and I was I was able to watch Ichiro in the batter's box uh, at each at bat. You know, I'm, I'm somewhere pretty low down. I'd some given me some some season tickets, and just his beauty and his composure, and as you say, his Zen. It's really um, now every player has to do that to some mm -hmm. degree. I think your typical you know, California born and bred player hasn't been given the opportunity to reflect on what he's doing the way Ichiro does. I mean, Ichiro really does seem like this extraordinary balletic kind of gymnastic kind of kind of talent. But watching him play, he was always, of all the non-Mets that there are, he was always my favorite player. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, how about that? Uh, uh, I mentioned that the Mariners right now, they decided to go on a building year. We hear that a lot. The Mariners have been on a building year ever since they began. If you, you know, I don't know that you guys get, you Mets fans get to claim um, in the basement anymore because you have won. You've won. You've made it. And the Mariners have never made it. And and so there are a whole bunch of new people, new faces. I know, I'm sure you, I know you've thought about this. So with all the trades, what am I rooting for? Am I rooting for a hometown team? Am I rooting for the name, the color of the uniform? And if that's the case, is that the same for any sport? Or is there something about baseball for a baseball fan that is, that is larger than the players that I'm rooting for? Yeah, this is such a hard question, you know, and, and as a, as a sort of prelude trying to answer you, let me say that my dad was always a skeptic about organized sports. He thought it was so commercial and, you know, it's so corporate. And he didn't, you know, you, you, baseball is supposed to be this father-son thing that brings you together. But I always loved baseball to sort of, despite my father's skepticism, of it, how can you really take that so seriously? And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try to see if I could explain to my dad, you know, this is this is what I'm caring about. This is what is I'm engaged with. This is why I love the game of baseball. Um, but you're putting you're really putting your finger on it. Um, and you know, to be totally honest with you, I don't I don't have a good answer. Um, when I was thinking about this in relation to uh, you know the, like the Dodgers and the Giants leaving New York City, and I was imagining how would I feel if my team were to leave as as you know happens actually all the time in different sports like you know the expos to the nationals and right. so on um and if the mets left new york i i think i would feel bereft like i think i would feel that my community had been destroyed and i i i know that many people felt that way when the giants left brooklyn i mean the when the dodgers left brooklyn and you hear people complain less about the giants having left new york but but you certainly hear these the Dodger fans, you know, talking about this this thing. Um, taking it to another another place, my favorite player growing up was Tom Seaver, mm. and I was not I was a fan of baseball, but I wasn't the sort of person who I was a kid and I didn't really pay attention to the business side of baseball, so I didn't have any comprehension of of why the Mets chose to trade him um, to the Cincinnati Reds. I think after the end of the 1977 season, or maybe it was at the start of the 1977 season, I couldn't believe it. This was this was the franchise was his nickname, and 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 I loved him. That's what I that's I honestly felt that I loved him. And how could they trade him away? And what is how does my relationship to him change because he is traded away? Or um, so. And then of course there's another side to it, which is teams exploit the players. And sometimes, you know, they'll make a player pitch when he should really rest or they'll, they'll, they don't necessarily have the same interests uh, at heart in all, in all decisions that they make. And players, of course, now have agents that, that guard them and protect them from, from that. Um, so how does that fit into the, <laughs> to the kind of more loving communal um, aspect of the game that, that appeals so much to me? Right. I, I just I just don't know the answer. I'm trying to yeah. I'm really just trying to echo your question. No, let me I... just say one let me give you one of those one of the little anecdotes. Um if you go to um when the Mets come to San Francisco, which they do every year, I usually get tickets and you can go down 
I never got to do this when I was a kid, but nowadays you can get down to sort of the dugout area, even if you don't have tickets in that area before the game and get autographs. And if you go down there, I'm just I'm just talking about the Giants and the Mets because those are the teams I see out here, but this is, I think, true in any stadium. There are tons of people getting autographs, and there's three kinds. There's kids. There's sort of professional autograph hounds who have, you know, who are really kind of slick about it. And then there's there's sort of dads <laughs> who, who are people who are finally, after a life of fantasy, are, are close to these players. And they may not even, they're not the players they grew up with, but there's this kind of awesomeness of it. And I remember I was with, I, I mentioned this in the book, I was with um, my boys. And this is actually uh, an interleague game. The, the Mets have been visiting in Oakland and they won. And at the end of the game, David Wright, who was at the time the, the, the best uh, position player on the Mets, as he ran off the field, he tossed his batting gloves and his wristbands at my group. And I was with three kids that I was taking, my, my sons and a friend and myself. And we all caught these batter's gloves and, and um, wristbands. And I just can't tell you how, how good it made us feel. <laughs> it, it just made us feel like, oh, my God, uh, we, have been, we have been chosen. We have been selected for this amazing honor to catch, to catch his sweaty used goods. <laughs> um, but, the, but, of course, and then afterwards I started thinking to myself, you know, Maybe this is maybe that's all business. I mean, it was all you know, logo covered Nike, this or that. Maybe that's just, um, or maybe that's PR that you know you you build your brand by doing things. I don't, but I I can't I can't really stay with those cynical thoughts very long because uh, I find my feelings get get genuinely caught up in it. All right, I'm going to come back to the good feelings, but I'm going to ask you one question from one essay that I'm curious about. So when you wrote Infinite Baseball, you, you, this, these were a series of posts that you wrote over the years for this NPR blog about sports. Um, uh, legalize it. All sports are like Formula One. The goal is to win. The project is to make the optimal vehicle. And you end, you end it, you, you talk about, you know, why ban blood doping? Why ban PEDs? In the future, I believe and I hope we'll look back on the anti-PED hysteria as a strange aberration, a sign of our moral immaturity. <laughs> immaturity. And you, you also touch on, you know, is, is the Tommy John surgery, isn't that the same thing, you argue? I mean, are these enhancements, are these efforts uh, unfair or are they how to play the sport? How do you answer that? Well, so in the book, I, I come out pretty clearly on the side of a kind of you know, libertarian attitude uh, towards these things. It's not that I don't think, it's not that I think that there isn't something pretty gross about the image of, you know, grown athletes shooting up in, in the locker room before the game. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a very un, unseemly image. Um, but um, what, what I'm sort of more interested in is, and this is the philosopher in me, is the thought processes that, that, um, underlie our reactions you know why is it that we think nothing of the fact that people have tommy john surgery but we're so offended by the fact that they take medicines um tommy john surgery is you know full general anesthetic surgery it it there there can be complications it involves pain and suffering and it involves the complete remaking of the elbow so that once you've had Tommy John, you can literally 
start again and have a second career. Um, and what, what, what is the conception of the self so that we can say that you're still a good pitcher after you've had Tommy John, but you're not a good hitter after you've had, after you've, you've doped. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm interested in it also in relation to the, the whole issue of technology. Um, you know, what a person can do depends upon a person's training and upbringing, but also the, the, the material culture that is available to us, the shoes we wear, the, the computers, the, the email, the pencils, the glasses, the clothes, I mean, the, the, the transportation, all of that makes it possible for us to be the kinds of dynamic agents that we are as human beings. And sports is no different. Think of the history of the, of the development of the changes in the baseball glove and in the balls and, 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 other, and in the training knowledge. You know, the teams have these, they're supposed to be experts, judging by all the injuries, you wonder, but they, they have supposedly experts that, that help them learn to maximize their, their, their performance. And then why do we draw the line? Why do we draw the line at, at the drugs? And in a way, more than anything else in this book, I'm really just trying to ask people to think about that. And I, and I, and I have an idea. I make a proposal, and it's, it's a philosophical proposal. I don't know if all the sports fans in your audience will necessarily be convinced. But I think that there's an old-fashioned conception of the self that is at work here. And it's the idea that the self is a kind of detached atom or island not in any way directly integrated with the environment and you know the it's it's like the old idea of the soul which resides inside of us and animates our body but then we act in the world and we're these heroic captains of our bodily selves um whereas i'm much more attracted and this grows out of my work which i know you're familiar with some of the work i did as a philosopher of cognitive science mm -hmm. i'm much more much more drawn to the idea that actually what you and I and each of us is, is a kind of dynamic locus of involvement with the world around us. We, we are embodied and we are situated and we are historically and culturally situated in our environments. And we're kind of, we, we enact what we are through that. And on this, and on this point, it's actually worth noticing that Here's a question. When, when, does, when do human beings, when does Homo sapiens show up in the history of the world? There's good evidence that the thing that marks our emergence as a species is our harnessing technological innovations roughly 75 to 100,000 uh, years ago. Um, and now you might say, well, we could, we could, develop new tools and, and, and technologies, sophisticated, you know, it used to be that we would just have hammers of a stone, but now we have hammers with parts and different edges for different kinds of things and made of multiple materials that required that we go harvest them from different areas and engage with trade with other groups. So at some point there's this sort of, there's this sort of technological explosion. And you might think, well, that happened because we got smarter, but the evidence the biological evidence is that that explosion happened many, many years, 100,000 years, after we were already anatomically evolved into the, you know, we, we already had the same brains. Even after we got the brains that we have 
now it still took another hundred thousand years to develop tools and language and 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 painting um and that's when we begin really that's when the modern human being shows up on the stage so my point is that we have always been tool users we have always been um kind of quasi cyborgs and that's that's the background against which i think it's interesting to think about some of these questions and there's one more piece of the puzzle i realize that i have a tendency to, to give too long answers but let me tell you one more thing again about the this. beauty of podcasts go ahead yeah <laughs> yeah i'm sorry but let me just let me just tell you one one more thing about this which is i think important people say you know you can't compare compare what barry bonds did to what hank aaron did when it comes to hitting home runs because bonds took drugs um now so that they just can't, there's, it's not possible to make the cross-generational comparison. Um, but if you actually look at the history of the game, it's very difficult to make serious cross-generational comparisons of any of any real substance. So just to give a couple of examples, um, you know, we think of Babe Ruth's accomplishments, but Babe Ruth never had to face African-American pitching. So some of the greatest pitchers ever to play the game were black pitchers, Babe Ruth and no white player had to face against them. And yet we still say he's the greatest home run hitter of all time before Hank Aaron came along. Uh, so the idea that we can make these cross, cross historical comparisons, it seems to me is a little bit iffy. Another example, uh, they, they lowered the pitcher's mound after the 1967 season or 68 season, I think either 67 or 68 because pitching had been so dominant with, with Koufax and Gibson especially, but also Seaver and others were, were, were so effectively controlling hitting that they thought they needed to give hitters advantage. So they lowered, they literally lowered the pitching mound to make it to, to take away a, 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 an advantage that pitching had. So every every career achievement deserves an asterisk that reflects the particular time and circumstances of which it happened. And players in the uh, '90s were doping. If you if you think that Roger Clemens wasn't a great pitcher because he doped, or that Bonds wasn't a great hitter because he doped, then you're just missing the the manifest beauty of the way those guys play baseball. I bet you get a lot of pushback and arguments from your baseball fans with those arguments. I agree. Um, there no, I don't seem to convince many people, but I try. You have this sentence is about thinking about it, the distinctive thinking practice that defines the game. If I am right in this, baseball has much to teach us about values, the law, the nature of language, the origins of writing, action, freedom, and yes, the meaning of life. <laughs> you are freighting baseball with a lot of weights there. Truly, all that That's stuff. That's a great. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, but, so what I'm responding to is your use of the word freighting. Like, like all, I could suddenly imagine like a fan listening. Like, oi, vey, do I have to deal with all that now? I just, I just <laughs> like the game. That's good. I like that. Um, but um, well, look, I try to I try to show in in the essays of this book. I mean, this is a, I should say for all of you uh, readers out there, th this is truly not a difficult to read book. It's these these were posts. I've redone them all, but they're they're short, they're independent, freestanding. So all the arguments are sort of run over just a couple of pages, and in them I really try to explore some of these questions. So I I I think about. Um, how baseball is bound up, for example, with this, as we've mentioned already in our conversation, with this pro process of trying to 
write itself down in real time. And to do that, it has to it has to invent a notation. So in the book, I think about the relationship between that and the history of language and the history of writing and the need for notations to think about things, to, to write things down. And uh, I think uh, um, another, another beautiful place where you can see fundamental questions about language and communication going on in baseball is in the, the pitcher-batter relationship. Um, one of the big mistakes people make these days is thinking it's sort of just about the power pitcher and throwing as hard as you can and, and sort of it's sort of the batter against the limits of his ability to respond to a split-second pitch. But uh, really, as, really what's so beautiful is that the pitcher, the pitcher wins by throwing something the batter can't hit. And the way the, way the pitcher can do that is by throwing something the batter's not expecting. Um, so that the pitcher tries to manipulate the batter's expectations. And if the batter can figure out what's coming, his chances of hitting it are much higher. So there's, there's a poem I quote at the beginning of the book where the poet says that the, the pitcher, he aims to miss the mark he seems to aim at, um, and that he throws to be a moment misunderstood. Um, you know, the, when the outfielder throws the ball, he aims to be caught. He aims to be comprehended, the poet says. But the pitcher throws to be a moment misunderstood, but not too much. And the idea is that you want the batter to understand, but too late <laughs> what you're doing. So I think that there's a sense in which there's a beautiful conversation that takes place between the pitcher and the batter. And I think if we think about and understand that conversation, that can teach us something about language. That's a nice so that's, answer. Yeah. I yeah, like that thank answer. You. Thank you. Thank you. Baseball likes to tout itself as America's pastime. So how do you handle that? Because you, you talk about it's tied to the idea of America and ourselves. It's, does that mean it's, it, it is or is not America's pastime? I've always been skeptical of this idea that it's America's pastime. It strikes me, how could a country as large as ours, as diverse as ours, and as caught up over its history with so much, you know, upheaval and change and migration and the whole works, how can it really be true that there was sort of one uniting pastime? And so my conclusion is, and this is an empirical claim I might be wrong about, but I have to turn to the historians finally to know the answer to this. But my suspicion is that the idea that baseball was the American pastime is a kind of um, is a kind of piece of it's an advertising slogan, it's a marketing slogan, or it's a, if it, it's a piece of propaganda, and it's it's not true. Um, it couldn't be true. Um, during the Civil War, people had other things to think about, um, and there were lots of other ways that people passed the time of day and and uh, tried to tried to find pleasures in life. But that said. Like any good piece of propaganda, it kind of it affects the way we think about ourselves. Just like the commercials might make you feel too thin or too fat, you know, because they're selling you an image about how you're supposed to look. So I kind of think that baseball has done a very good job selling us an idea about the role it has in our lives. And once you've got the idea, then you can kind of try to make it true. <laughs> and I think a lot of us do try to make it true. I think there are... There are fathers and sons who really act out a kind of Hollywood image of fathers and sons playing baseball together. And that's beautiful. I, it's not a bad thing. 
but it's important to realize that there's a kind of an image reality loop at work and uh and um so that there then becomes a sense in which we we use baseball as a lens through which to think about ourselves yeah, yeah. um and i think you know that's why we call it the world series and that's why we we and and it has a negative side too i i really don't like the way the game has gotten so so tied up now it's marketing i should say has gotten so tied up with with um kind of certain kind of patriotism and sort of um you know airplane flyovers to celebrate um to celebrate a baseball game seems a funny thing to me baseball is a game of posing and pageants you write and one i like uh in your acknowledgments i would also i would like also to mention tiggy eldred <laughs> who why is tiggy eldred come up in your acknowledgments and how does that uh, relate back to what we're talking about that's so funny that you pick up on that so tiggy's a boy that doesn't remember me i'm sure he was just a big kid who lived around the corner and it was he was kind of the star player on in this in this kids based homespun urban softball league that I played in when I was maybe between nine and thirteen, and I just thought he was the coolest guy. And um, he's grown up and moved away, and I've had no contact with him, and he doesn't know me. In fact, I was thinking I should try to search for him on Facebook or something and send him a copy of the book. But I just when I, I, was, I was trying to think about because, like I said, I didn't grow up in a baseball family. Um, I didn't grow up. My, my parents were artists and, and they were not really into, you know, anything that was kind of part of conventional American life. And my brother and I kind of discovered it ourselves. And there was no Little League where I lived. So we just kind of made it with kids. And Tiggy Eldridge was uh, was a boy who did it very well. And. There's nothing like a, like the beauty of a young kid who who can play baseball well. I like the idea that baseball is slow enough that we can look and look at the poses and the stances and the actions, and from those gestures we can learn something about ourselves or try to imitate those gestures in a way. Yeah, yeah. You write about it about the Trojan War. Homer wrote, "The gods devised and measured out this devastation to make a song for those in times to come." That brings us closer to the truth about baseball. We play baseball so that we may sing and write about it. You call it the infinite game. That's part of what you mean by the infinite game? Yeah, exactly. The idea is that with some activities, you know, you can separate the activity itself from thinking about the activity. So, you know, digestion is one thing and thinking about digestion is another. But baseball is an activity which, in order to play it, you need to think about it. And it's a game that kind of contains within it a whole culture of self-reflection. And like I said earlier, I think that's, that's kind of generally true of culture. It's, it's true of language. It's true of the law. It's true of, of other sports, uh, to go back to your, your previous questions. Um, but I think it's, it's, um, it's a focal fact about baseball, that in some sense, we play baseball to think about it or, or, or playing it is a, is a way of thinking about it. And we always have to do both. All right, sir. I appreciate it. You know, I got to talk to Stephen Jay Gould about baseball. Did I, you? And I got to talk to Roger Angel about oh, wow. baseball. And um, yeah, smart people take up the, the game and uh, 
that is another aspect of looking at it and thinking about it. See who else is thinking about it. So I appreciate this book a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm grateful and grateful for the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Steve. Bye. Bye. Alvin Noe is a writer and philosopher living in Berkeley in New York. He works on the nature of mind and human experience. He also thinks a lot about baseball. His latest book is Infinite Baseball, Notes from a Philosopher at the Ballpark. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You know, you can also listen to my other podcast, In the Moment, from Town Hall, where we interview some of the folks who are coming to Town Hall during the season. I do appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you'll be listening again next week, right here, at length, with Steve Scherer.